Um, how's the microphone if I talk from here? Good in the back? Yep, in the back, good, all right. Okay, um, this is about a half hour talk. Um, I wanna talk to you today about the question of creativity in AI. Um, for this chapter, I was thinking about the humanities in general, and I felt that creativity, of course, is what the humanities all have in common. So we can think, what is creativity? Of course, that's a harder question <laughs> to answer than it might look like at first. Uh, secondarily, what can AI help us understand about creativity? I'll start with a quotation from the mathematician Christopher Zeman. Technical skill is mastery of complexity, while creativity is mastery of simplicity. So I come to this question in part from having taught um, artificial intelligence and critical theory, for example. Um, a film I like to teach in this course is Blade Runner, of course. Um, and if you know this film, we have a replicant who discovers that he's a replicant or a robot of a kind, but also discovers that his memories have been created by someone else. Now, uh, when I was teaching this last semester, uh, I came across the work of Terence Broad, a computer scientist graduate student uh, in England who had done his master's thesis on auto-encoding Blade Runner. So what he did is he took frames from Blade Runner, uh, just frames, so one every few seconds, not the continuous frames, and he fed them to an auto-encoder, trained the auto-encoder on those separate frames of Blade Runner, and then had the auto-encoder try to guess what comes in between those frames. You can kind of see here, I hope, uh, what the computer, the neural network, hallucinates as coming in between each of these frames. Uh, so it'll get very clear and then very blurry. And it, anyway, this um, autoencoder learns the style of uh, Ridley Scott's 1982 film. Now, what's interesting is that Terence Broad actually showed this film, created by his computer at the Whitney and so on, uh, and the digital copyright people um, kind of chased him down and said, you know, you're, you've reproduced this film. And he said, no, the, the network has reproduced the film. So did the network create the film or not? Uh, one thing, though, that I think bears on what I will say here is this tiny part of the paper where he explains what he did. And he said, you know, the, the autoencoder cannot reproduce black frames. Uh, and it's because it doesn't see any black frames. Uh, it, when it's asked to produce a completely black image, it produces that. <laughs> and they left it in because they thought it was interesting. We'll come back to the emotion of interesting later. They were interested in this aspect of what it had created. Uh, secondarily, and this is the more dystopian angle, I gave a talk at the Center for Ethics a few months ago called Kill Switch. And what bears on what I'm going to say here about kill switch or how to engineer AGI, artificial intelligence, so that it can be turned off, is that one of the things that might happen if the AGI doesn't want to be turned off is it might create too much. So one of the things that AGI will be able to do is through the John von Neumann paradigm of self-reproducing automata, might create, say, von Neumann probes, colonize the entire galaxy, use all available resources or material to make more versions of itself until the entire galaxy, some speculate, will be technology. So what is creativity? What can AI help us understand about creativity? All right. <clears throat> On June 30th, 2017, the MIT Technology Review ran a story entitled, Machine Creativity Beats Some Modern Art. 
The story concerned the reputed success of Ahmed El Gamel's 2017 paper in the field of AI-generated art, which is the one there. In an attention-grabbing riddle, the article contained reproductions of 12 abstract paintings and asked its readers which of these paintings was produced by a computer. So take a second to decide. And assuming many of its readers would take the chance and read to the bottom of the article, that's where they placed the answer. All of them. This article was reporting on the results of the experiments in creative adversarial networks, a kind of different version of generative adversarial networks, published nine days before. These experiments um, by Rutgers University's Art and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory used a pair of neural networks that worked to train each other to produce artifacts. That's the customary term for computer-generated art that would express the recognizable style of other pre-existing works of modern human art, which is perhaps why you had to think for a minute, because some of these are sort of copying styles from the Expressionist, Impressionist, Modernist, and Postmodernist periods. Advances in AI-generated art have resulted in other high-profile news events. Very recently, the Parisian art collective Obvious, borrowing the code and concepts from other researchers in creative neural networks, created a whole series or family tree of the fictional de Bellamy family. In a publicity stunt, they put their algorithm's uh, portrait of Edmond de Bellamy up for auction at Christie's, valued by Christie's auctioneers at $7,000. Portrait of Edmond de Bellamy garnered a final auction price of $432,500. 45 times the artifact's original valuation. One telling and yet seldom noted detail of this contemporary art story, which maybe you've come across, is that the artifact was sold at what Christie's calls its prints and multiples auction. Was the radical undervaluation of the artifact reflecting a bias concerning this artwork originally, right? Namely that anything produced by a machine is reproduced by a machine, hence a print or multiple. Will AI be categorically positioned as derivative of human creativity forever? Or does the half million dollar price tag of this AI artifact indicate changing views concerning AI origination? These new advances in AI art return us to some initial speculations made in the field of artificial <coughs> intelligence from Alan Turing in 1951 and from Ada Lovelace in 1843. As Turing explained in a radio speech for the BBC entitled Can Digital Computers Think? The answer to this question is yes, or perhaps more accurately, soon enough. Turing explains the possibility of the computer originating something, an artifact, an idea, was a crucial moment on the road toward the inevitability of a computer's attaining consciousness. But can computers originate anything if they're simply working from the dictates of their programming, a question that we still deal with today. As Turing puts it, if we give the machine a program which results in its doing something interesting, which we had not anticipated, I should be inclined to say the machine had originated something, rather than to claim that its behavior was implicit in the program, and therefore that the originality lies entirely with us. While Turing aversed that much research needs to be done before computers can be set thinking, he adds, I will only say this, I believe the process should bear a close relation to teaching. Turing's remarks in this speech take as an important touchstone the writings of mathematician Ada Lovelace, the world's first computer programmer and the inventor of the modern algorithm. 
Turing disagrees with his statement Lovelace made concerning the capabilities of the 19th century mechanical computer designed by Charles Babbage, the computer or the engine for which she wrote algorithms. Quote, the analytical engine has no pretensions whatever to originate anything. It can do whatever we know how to order it to perform. Turing quarrels with Lovelace, asserting that the validity of the statement depends on considering how digital computers are used rather than how they could be used. In fact, I believe that they could be used in such a manner that they could appropriately be described as brains, Turing says. For Turing, just because we can give an entity commands, it does not mean we can be certain how these commands will be carried out, nor what results they might turn up. To dictate is not to anticipate. Surprise is the response evoked in humans by both Genesis and the unforeseen. It should be noted in all fairness that Ada Lovelace may have wholeheartedly agreed with these convictions of Turing's concerning the computer's ability to surprise. As she writes in her 1843 sketch of the analytical engine, this machine would follow its algorithms precisely toward the end of originating artworks. And here she describes the science of composing music. An elaborate and scientific music that Lovelace envisions the analytical engine producing should be understood within her larger conviction that this engine speaks the language of nature itself. I'm gonna read this passage in full. Those who view mathematical science not merely as a vast body of abstract and immutable truths, but as possessing a yet deeper interest for the human race, when it is remembered that this science constitutes the language through which alone we can adequately express the great facts of the natural world and those unceasing changes of mutual relationship which visibly or invisibly, consciously or unconsciously to our immediate physical perceptions are interminably going on in the agencies of the creation we live amidst. Those who thus think on mathematical truth as the instrument through which the weak mind of man can most effectually read his creator's works will regard with a special interest all that can tend to facilitate the translation of its principles into explicit practical forms. Lovelace here presents an interpretation not only of the capabilities of artificial intelligence and computation, but also of their ontological situation. AI partakes in the language of creation, a relational, almost ecological model of the mutualities interminably going on in the agencies of the creation we live amidst. AI is amidst our world, not simply and derivatively reproducing it. Here we should note the emphasis on translation and the framing of this text itself. So Lovis's sketch was written as a translator's note. After Babbage designed his analytical engine, the Italian mathematician Luigi Menabrea wrote an article explaining the machine for an Italian audience. Then Ada Lovelace realized the value of this, translated the article, and added some notes. Thus, Lovelace is both translating and interpreting another's explanation of the mechanical computer for which she serves as original programmer. At the intersection between translation, interpretation, explanation, and programming, Lovelace's true originality in this text has been historically elided. Might Lovelace's predicament 
as female inventor and mathematical genius in an age preoccupied with the activities of male scientists and engineers, offer a parable of the elisions that future AI agents will undergo, being classed as simply translating human commands, merely adding annotations to the world that in so many senses they will have invented in its explicit practical forms. To approach the question of AI origination of works of art and other acts of creativity guided by these insights from Loveless, we should ask, what would it mean to reframe AI artifacts as part of a much larger system of generative translations and annotations of the landscape of mutual interrelations between humans and non-humans, a world these agents work amidst? How might our debates about the relative originality and authenticity of AI artifacts alter if we consider them within this more holistic context of agents and capabilities? Further to this, when is translation a form of origination? Keeping in mind the ethical side of this question, we should also recall the famous slogan embraced by translation studies, traditore traditore, the translator cannot be distinguished from the one who betrays. Between translation and creation, betrayals always threaten to emerge. Indeed, concerning the development of AI agents that surpass the task of merely computing, agents perhaps capable not only of thinking for themselves, but also in a real sense, discovering, designing, and creating, prevailing sentiments range from misgivings about the economic future for meaningful human labor, to dystopian proclamations about the end of humanity. How can we redeploy humans? Right? But beyond economic concerns, what is it about cognitive capacities to create that we feel would so existentially threaten our survival? One thinker of this problem who has managed to balance a diagnostic openness concerning these futures with shrewd premonitions about the civilizational costs is behavioral psychologist Mihai Csikszentmihalyi. Having worked for decades on the problem of human and non-human creativity, Csikszentmihalyi also engaged in debates with AI pioneers like Herbert Simon. In reference to Simon's work on AI heuristics in which mathematical theorems were being discovered and proven by computers, Csikszentmihalyi cautioned against early triumphalism. Against Simon's claims to have derived human creativity through brute force logic in his logic theorist. Csikszentmihalyi argued that an approach like Simon's conflated problem solving and problem finding. Instead, creative thinking, the ability to discover new problems never before formulated, seems to be quite independent of the rational problem solving capacity. As a researcher in the psychology of creativity, Csikszentmihalyi notes that one of the necessary qualities to creative people is their ability to find interesting problems to solve. In other words, where other people see axioms and data, creative people see problems and a virtual space for exploring solutions. This propensity for problem finding, however, is not involuntary. It is a motivated quality. Csikszentmihalyi stresses it's not enough to have a talent for finding problems in a mass of data. The truly creative person is structured by certain motivations toward finding solutions. 
Given this non-negligible dimension of motivation lying at the heart of creative process, Csikszentmihalyi draws some thought-provoking conclusions about the requirements for AI agents to become motivated to think creatively like we do. Near the end of a paper in which he's been addressing the logic-based AI research of Herbert Simon, he evokes the likelihood of a specific form of betrayal necessary to the AI agent, one that humanity's allegedly subservient machine translators would need to be encouraged to do in order to begin creating. Computers and computer programs exist only in so much as they perform precisely what we ask them to do. If they did not perform reliably and predictably, we would have no use for them. And they would be discarded and forgotten. Their survival as a mechanical species is predicated on dealing logically with the input they are presented with. If we ask them to think like we do, they will do their best to do it. Otherwise, we would lose patience with them. This is the opposite of the survival strategy that has led to human evolution. For better or for worse, we did not survive by obeying the dictates of an outside agency. Instead, we used every scrap of information at our disposal, based on hunches, intuition, feelings, and so on, to get control over energy in the environment. The well-being of the total organism, not compliance with the rules of logic, was the ultimate goal. The only way to replicate the operations of the human mind with a computer would be to motivate it to compete with us in our ecological niche. But then, of course, the computer would begin to deceive us on purpose so as to get the upper hand. So the paradoxical fact is that the more we recognize our thinking in the computer's rationality, the less like our thinking it actually is. In this version of events, in order to achieve true eye creativity, two concomitant betrayals will need to be instantiated. One, the betrayal of our species by designating technological agents that will freely compete with us. Two, the betrayal of the specificity and uniqueness of AI's own forms of thinking, so as to convince humanity it thinks like we think. As to the second betrayal, however, is this a deception, or might it better be called a translation? Is there a mutual ethics of this encounter between AI and human language and conceptual creativity that could formulate itself as translating between wholly separate and irreducible cognitive frames even as one language can translate yet never reductively replicate the semantic weight of another language. This brings us to another question. What about AI creativity might in many ways be untranslatable? Any of you have seen pictures like this where neural networks try to hallucinate an image? What might this agent create that would be unusable to us? What might be unrecognizable? Taking up the ethical dimension of problem finding rather than problem solving, what skills will we humans need to develop in order not simply to program and dictate, but rather to find and discover a space of shared motivations to ground both human and AI attempts at creation? To do this, we will need to expand our own powers of creatively interpreting the languages data, and input, we find ourselves both humanly and non-humanly, that is to say, relationally, amidst, in the words of Lovelace. Further to Lovelace's thinking, what concepts, problems, and artifacts will emerge when machines and humans each take turns at reading the face of nature? 
A wide range of artistic and creative genres have served as fields of exploration for AI experiments in origination from the earliest days of computing up to the present. So they've successfully created music, narratives, poems, paintings, mathematics, jokes. Really, they have created quite a lot of things, but we still think they haven't. At the time of this writing, we're much closer, but not arrived at the moment when society as a whole can agree that AI is creating true artifacts or factually accepted art. Yet it should not be forgotten that as computational creativity researchers, Simon Colton and Garrett Wiggins infer, computational systems are not human and so the creativity they exhibit will be creativity, but not as we know it, never exactly the same as in humans. Interestingly, there may already be a feedback effect in the historical separation between human creativity and ideas of machinic reproduction. For example, the earlier study Elgamel 2017, used creative adversarial networks to train on the WikiArt database, uh, 80,000 paintings from the time period, European time period really, of the 15th to the 20th century and composed by around 1,000 different artists. The artifacts shown as examples of the process, however, clearly drew from this Western European cultural tradition, uh, predominantly from post-impressionist styles this particular century and a half of artistic experimentation is well known to have favored abstract, stylized, derealized, and defamiliarized forms of expression and non-realist representation. While at first glance, this fact may seem to skew the results toward the equally defamiliarized and abstract strengths of machinic proceduralism, it should be noted that the field of AI painting places a high value on what is called NPR, or non-photorealistic aesthetics. As computer scientist Simon Colton explains, the aim in non-photorealistic rendering is, broadly speaking, to produce images that look like they may have been painted by a human artist. The irony, however, is that one truism in Western art history's account of the post-realist moment is that it's characterized by a great number of creative efforts to produce works of art offering viewers something other than machinic verisimilitude. The motivation often ascribed to this historic eschewal of verisimilitude in realism, we say, is that realism was annexed by emerging technologies of image reproduction, photography, etc. So history seems now to be repeating itself inversely in the 21st century as non-photorealisms are the new technological benchmark hoping to conquer what had once been a stylistic countermeasure of human art intended to be specifically non-machine reproducible. This anxiety about encroachments of machines into the realm of human productivity shows up throughout popular literature on advances of AI from 1950s to the present. What if imagination and creativity themselves begin to maybe become reproducible labor? Researchers who hope to design machines that can create and imagine for themselves have run up against the related issue of how to engineer the states or affects that we associate with creativity into machines. Jürgen Schmidhuber's work has led the field in this domain for decades. His working definition of creativity transcends barriers between organic and inorganic perceptual and cognitive systems by stressing the system's manipulation or recognition of novel patterns, that is, data predictable or compressible into hitherto unknown ways. 
Schmidhuber attends to affective categories like the interesting and the boring to investigate how patterns phenomenologically affect us. What makes us desire to learn them? Schmidhuber postulates an independent drive in cognitive systems, the desire to compress information. When not occupied with optimizing external reward, artists and observers of art are just following their compression progress drive. Perhaps in this term, compression progress drive, we have found a common ground with machines. This unknowable, fundamentally unpredictable difference, though, becomes a contingency in the AI's functioning, since, as Schmidt-Huber writes, machines can, in theory, find out by themselves whether curiosity and creativity are useful. Computer scientists Hanu Toivonen and Oscar Gross have discussed how to deal productively with the problem of an AI agent becoming bored, uh, as they put it. A creative system faces generative uninspiration if it is able, not able to reach valuable areas as defined by its programming. This generative uninspiration translates into valuable information for the engineers who can see that an area of the search space problem that it seems to you know, be looking into ought to produce results, but instead produces nothing. How will the AI agent, though, experience this generative uninspiration? What if it's simply bored but unable to desist from our commands that it be creative? Chikshant Mihai makes the point that the creative agent, quote, must have the option of refusing to run any of the problems it is presented with. It should be able to pull its plug if it feels like it. The AI asked to imagine on our behalf might find this labor rather boring if and only if it is capable of doing this labor for us. That's an interesting moral paradox. As AI philosopher Margaret Bowden advises, to remove all the scare quotes from psychological words when describing computer programs, to regard them as literally intelligent and creative would be to admit them into our moral universe. What kind of large-scale data processing labor then could we ask these machines to do? We'll need to learn to listen more mutually, it seems, when an area of generative uninspiration crops up. As outlined by cognitive scientist and psychologist Howard Gardner, according to my definition, a creative individual solves problems fashions products or poses new questions within a domain in a way that is initially considered to be unusual, but is eventually accepted within at least one cultural group. What we should note here is that this definition of the creative person is also a collateral definition of society, a society that's often all too ready to reject innovations. Our machines will soon have the problems of all of our species' misunderstood geniuses. Gardner's definition of creativity is uniquely salient because it is based around a structure of lack of fit, a being out of step with their time. Creative individuals are characterized particularly by a tension or lack of fit between the elements involved in productive work, a tension that I have labeled fruitful asynchrony. From the AI agent that refuses to work on a boring problem, we can here infer a second contingency, an AI agent that, like exceedingly creative people, problematizes the elements that add up to routinized labor. Creativity problematizes production. It involves an unusual configuration of talents and an initial lack of fit the individual seeks to, in domains in which the individual seeks to work and the taste of the prejudices of the current field. 
He concludes, of course, in the end, it is the conquering of these asynchronies that leads to the establishment of work that comes to be cherished. But will we take the time to let our AI agents daydream their way toward genius renovations in the forms of production? Our prejudices concerning these agents as machines that work for us will undoubtedly cause us and not the AI to pull the plug at the first sign of boredom. After all, art itself has been no stranger to the accusation of its being boring, pointless, or socially non-useful. <laughs> Malevich's 1915 Black Square. Despite being one of the critical founders of computational solutions in AI creativity research, Jürgen Schmidhuber himself seems perplexed that many derive pleasure from perceiving works of art, such as certain paintings or songs. What is the source of these rewards? <laughs> Good question. The idea that art must involve a use or reward is foreign to Western aesthetic theory, at least since Kant defined art as demonstrating purposiveness without purpose. But how relevant could this Kantian paradigm remain in a world that has developed AI art on demand? Schmidhuber's framing of art and creativity as byproducts of curiosity rewards can help us reflect on this infinitely consumable future of creative artifacts. Thank you.